Welcome to this, the fourth episode of the Great Wealth Divide podcast series from WBGL Studios. I am your host, Dale Favors. Through this weekly platform, we'll discuss the racial wealth divide between Black and Latinx communities versus white communities in America. Today and in subsequent programs, we'll look at why these disparities exist, including how the historic and continuing factors such as the structural barriers created by systemic economic racism have caused and continue to perpetuate huge disparities. Additionally, we will explore what can be done and what is being done to provide actionable solutions that will improve the lives within these communities while lifting the country together. We will highlight these solutions being undertaken today and discuss how they will bring balance and parity in Black and Latinx communities when compared to their white counterparts. We'll discuss these issues with thought leaders and stakeholders who are working to create better outcomes for Black and Latinx communities and put them in a position to build wealth. Before we get started, I would like to acknowledge our sponsor. We thank J.P. Morgan Chase, who is proud to sponsor the Great Wealth Divide podcast series. J.P. Morgan Chase has committed an additional $30 billion to address the key drivers of the racial wealth divide and to reduce systemic racism against Black and Latinx people. Learn more about what they're doing to address these issues and provide solutions at jpmorganchase/pathforward. As we get underway with today's episode, I encourage you, our listeners, to contact us with your questions and or comments. Our email address is tgwd at wbgo.org. Or you can call us at 212-994-9583. That's 212-994-9583. We look forward to hearing from you. Generational poverty and generational wealth are two sides of the same coin. If you're born into generational wealth, the likelihood of you staying wealthy is very, very high. If you're born into generational poverty, the chances of you staying in poverty are very high. Why? Because there's systemic influences. Look, there's nothing wrong with getting paid. They sort of had the audacity to dream, to explore, to be curious. And if we aren't cultivating that early on for students, it just doesn't happen naturally. You just heard Miguel Martinez Sainz president of St. Francis College, and Gabriela Tejador, co-founder and co-head of the Brooklyn Independent Middle School. They were weighing in on two important aspects of what impacts educational policy, as well as how to best develop and cultivate positive learning experiences for Black and Latinx students. We will start the conversation with Gabriela, and then Miguel will follow up with his thoughts. In today's episode of The Great Wealth Divide, we're focused on education, specifically the disparities between the educational experiences within white communities in contrast to those in Black and Latinx communities. Additionally, we will discuss solutions that these educators are doing to lessen the achievement gap. All of this and more in this, the fourth episode of The Great Wealth Divide. I would like to start today by saying the opportunity that we all have is woven into the dreams that we create and have on a daily basis. The ability to dream is driven by the things we learn and see. Today, we are happy to have two dreamers 
in the education space. Gabriela Tejedor, co-head of Brooklyn Independent Middle School, and Miguel Martinez Sainz, president of St. Francis College in Brooklyn. Welcome. Quality early childhood education is essential because this is where we begin to find enjoyment and learning. The intellectual inquiry and the stimulation derived from problem solving is what sets up a lifelong love for reading, discovery, and relationship building. This is where the desire for higher learning is initiated and the pursuit of a college education is begun right at that point at the beginning. So I want to start with you, Gabrielle. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, the work you're doing with the Brooklyn Independent Middle School. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. So I was born in Columbia and moved pretty early on to Miami, Florida. And I was brought to New York City because I had a deep passion to attend New York University and fell in love with education and taught for 10 years before starting Brooklyn Independent Middle School. Brooklyn Independent Middle School is a direct response to New York City having the most segregated school system in the country and wanting to really combat that by creating a school environment that reflects the racial and socioeconomic diversity of Brooklyn. And the way that we achieve this is through a unique sliding scale tuition model where families pay anywhere between $500 to $38,000 and anywhere in between so that we are truly reflecting the socioeconomic diversity of Brooklyn. You said something that was pretty interesting to me, this thing that I don't know that many of us know, but you said that the segregation in the New York school system was one of the most segregated. Tell us more about what you learned as you began to practice teaching in the school system. Yeah, sure. So I'll start at the beginning. So I actually, I started teaching in Patterson, New Jersey, and then moved over to Brownsville. And I taught predominantly black and brown low-income students at what was considered a high-performing public charter school. And that was defined by student test scores. And I was really proud of the work that my team and I were doing to close the opportunity gap by prioritizing structure and success on the state test. But on the side, I was actually privately tutoring. And I was tutoring students from more affluent neighborhoods in Brooklyn and Manhattan. And that's where I think it really hit me, where this great division really started to showcase itself to me. So the students that I was privately tutoring on the side, they were sharing all sorts of different stories about their robotics classes and coding classes, their theater and visual art electives, that they were taking part in STEM projects. And in these exchanges, I think what I started to realize was it's not just about the skills you need in order to pass a standardized test. What was actually being transferred to the students that I was tutoring was honestly just this sort of audacity to dream, to explore, to build passions. And what I realized was the high-performing charter school that I was working at, students were just expected to perform well on a standardized state test. And so when I thought about the students I was tutoring, it was really more about developing their voices, having bold ideas, and learning about the world around them. And so the contrast became very clear. There are schools for students who we think need structure and others for who we think deserve creativity. And ultimately, what I realized is when our students are segregated, we create different expectations, completely different realities. And we sort of assume and dream and wish and push very differently than we would if they were in integrated settings. Gabriella, what, what I heard was high expectations, access, 
and economics. And all these things play a part in a child's development and opportunity to understand what's out there to learn. Is that is that what you're saying? Certainly. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that we have this big problem, which is the opportunity gap in our country. There has been certain measures that have been attempted at, specifically in Black and Latinx communities that are low income, in which we've decided, well, the way to go about this is just by really tailoring and focusing on student achievement with a really specific measure, which is this state examination. But the problem is when you go into these more affluent neighborhoods, they're learning how to achieve well on that state test, but they're also learning all the other important skills and they have all the other great exposure. And so if we aren't really providing this holistic whole child education, we aren't really setting up students for success for the future and beyond and ultimately to be participants in, in our society. And and I think that that's so important because that access creates the opportunity to develop the social skills and the communication skills and all those skills needed to really begin the process of engaging within your community and beyond, as well as the opportunity to find what else is available to you. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, again, like when I think back to the experiences I had with the students that I privately tutored. They sort of had the audacity to dream, to explore, to be curious. And if we aren't cultivating that early on for students, it just doesn't happen naturally. And so it's really about creating that environment early on that many students who come from more affluent neighborhoods, that's programmed and embedded within them from a very early on. And I think it's also perpetuated by the world in which we live in and where they're seeing cartoons and books in which they see themselves presented and people that look like them in positions of power. So we have to intentionally create educational environments where we are building up our students to dream and and to see themselves in these positions of power. Gabrielle, thank you for, for really setting that stage for us, because I think it ties back into what I talked about early, finding that love for learning, reading, exploration, discovery is so important. And not having that, not having the access to that can can really set some students back. And so I want to go to Miguel here. Miguel, tell us a little bit about your background, and, and then I want you to help us understand some of the things that Gabriella was talking about, how you're seeing that play out at the college level. Yeah, so look, I appreciate you having me. There's a lot going on here. I mean, you guys started in, in some into some powerful conversation. I say my background, my parents were refugees from Cuba. I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, but raised in Miami. I went to Miami when I was three years old. And I want to underscore something that's being said here, which is about the, I'll put it this way, the enjoyment of learning. So I'll just use myself as an example, right? I loved going to school. I was, I was upset because my cousin, who lived about three blocks from me, he got to go to preschool. I didn't get to go to preschool. So I, I had no access to that. And I wanted to go to school and my parents couldn't afford it. it was, you know, at the time they didn't, they didn't have Head Start. So we didn't have access to it. And my parents said, I'm sorry, we can't afford to send you to preschool. My brother's a little older and he had already started school. So, but it was an interesting thing, right? What happens in the, in the trajectory there is, right, you start becoming disillusioned with school, right? And I think this is really also important as we begin to think about, you know, some of the things that Gabriela said, which is how do we, how do we cultivate this desire? Because it's a desire, really, to dream, to explore, to be curious, right? How do we continue to cultivate that? Because it's innate. You know, I was talking to young people. I have a former student who teaches at, in Washington in Spokane, and he has a philosophy club, and I met with him yesterday. 
And I said that. I mean, I said, look, the, the key thing is how do we reinstill in ourselves something that's innate, which is our curiosity? But it's also one of the things that the school system has done is it kind of extinguishes that in a lot of spaces. Why? Because the spatial orientation doesn't allow us to imagine a reality that is foreign to us. And I mean that in all sorts of ways, foreign. My background, again, is, is interesting, given what we're talking about in the wealth divide, um, because I actually, my, my father didn't go to college. Actually, my mother went to college when I started college. But there's also a, a sense for my experience, which was, you know, people were grinders. There were a lot of folks that came that just figured out how to make ends meet. And what I didn't realize at the time when I was young was that my dad was working a job he didn't want to work. So my brother and I could choose to live the lives we wanted to live. Now, I didn't see that in part because they didn't talk about that. It was like a grin and bear culture, right? So my dad did what he needed to do. And then he would tell us, you got to go to school. And I'm thinking, well, you didn't go to school. And that was the wrong thing to say at that age, as, as everybody knows, and in that cultural environment. But I think that's an important piece. So my background, I just want to give you quickly. I'm an idiosyncratic president of a college. And I tell you that because I like to underscore this. I didn't see the trajectory. And one of the things Gabriela saying, I think, when you're young and in some of these more affluent communities, you're seeing the trajectory because you're seeing a lot of people that are negotiating a space and what the outcomes are, whether they end up working at Morgan Stanley or Goldman or wherever. They end up at Harvard teaching. You begin to see what's possible. And for me, I just got to be honest, I didn't see the, the outs. So I didn't even want to go to college. Irony, I'm a college president. I didn't want to go to college. My father, I fought with my parents about going to college. And the reason, I just want to be clear, the reason is I was disillusioned with school. I didn't feel to me that school, it didn't resonate with me. And part is, again, I want to emphasize this because I'm at the college level. Really, for me, the, the key piece, and this is not just uh, uh, you know nodding to, to Gabriela, middle school is a critical point in a child's life. And if you're not energized to really re-engage with school, it's difficult to turn us back. It's difficult once we lose them to bring them back. And so for me, again, it was an interesting thing. I didn't want to go to college. I'll just tell you real quickly. Right? I ended up going to college. My grandfather had worked in a school, in a, in a college in North Miami, and I dropped myself out after the first semester. I thought my father was going to kill me. But again, what, what I think is important is, is that we have to have the conversation not about just why. It's got to be a reason. And our schools need to create conditions for the young people to want to stay engaged. And that's, I think, a very difficult thing when we're completely under-resourced. And I'll just give this as I close, right? At the most affluent institutions in the country, both public and private, faculty have an opportunity to engage with students very intimately. Student-faculty ratios are 8 to 1, 10 to 1. Faculty teach less courses. When you look at under-resourced institutions, and I'll go all the way down to the community colleges, in my view, do yeoman's work in this country and are underappreciated. They're 28 to 1. The faculty are teaching five courses a semester. They got 40 students in each class. How do you create conditions for them to do what was said earlier, right, which is to dream, to explore, to be curious? Those folks are just grinding to try to get through the day and impart some knowledge, not wisdom. Miguel, that's interesting, and I love it. Audience, that's real talk from a college president who's giving you a window into the evolution that took place and shaped his motivation and passion to create a more equitable educational experience for students that he's been responsible for. Miguel, I know you have a PhD in philosophy. 
As an educational leader with a passion for learning, how do you best impress upon your students how important education is in laying the foundation for wealth building? How do you challenge the St. Francis students to dream bigger and see the array of opportunities and possibilities that are available to them? Well, look, a lot of different things. I mean, I think, first of all, you got to create conditions for them to be hopeful about the future. And I think that's that's fundamental. As I said, I, and, and I know you know this, Dale, I go into a lot of high schools, I actually teach in correctional facilities, and I just try to move and create conditions for hope. One of the things you have right, when you've got a nihilistic environment, when you've got an environment where it's hopeless, not even a hope on hopeful, it's just hopeless. It becomes difficult for young people to see what the outs are. I'm going to give you a quick story. I was in a school deep into Queens. And uh, I talked a little bit about, you know, Wall Street. And they were looking at me and I said, you know, have, you know, how many of you been down to the financial district to get a sense, right? This is global capital. It's not the United States. It's the, the center of global capital. And nobody raised their hands. So I said to them, well, why haven't you gone down there just to check it out? I mean, just go down to Wall Street. Where's the bull? Check it out. No, that's not for us. Think about that. You've got young people in this community that are seven, eight train stops away from the center of global capital where wealth really is generated, they don't even believe that they should go down there because it's not a place for them. So I think that's the first condition Dale. I want to put that underscore that. We need to create conditions for them to think that it's a place for them. And again, one of the things, again, Gabriela said this, they need to be able to see people like them in those positions. I told this story the other day. I never once in my whole college career had a, a Latinx faculty member. I mean, that's a very unusual thing. It's not unusual, but it's unusual in the sense that then I become a college president. Where were my role models? My role model, my most significant role model was a white Irish woman, which is cool because we, we need all sorts of role models, but it's still kind of interesting that that was my role model. I didn't have anybody in my community that did what I did. And what I was thinking about doing from philosophy. So from a philosophy background, what I tell young people is this. I got a thing I do. Maybe I'll go to, if Gabriela invites me, I'll go to the middle school and do this thing on philosopher kings and queens. And what I always say is the philosopher is always asking a question nobody else is asking. We're always trying to think about what's going on. And I think one of the things that we don't ask a lot about is generational wealth. We talk a lot in this country about generational poverty, and we blame people for being stuck in generational poverty. But we actually realize, if we think about it, and this is what I tell young people, generational poverty and generational wealth are two sides of the same coin. If you're born into generational wealth, the likelihood of you staying wealthy is very, very high. If you're born into generational poverty, the chances of you staying in poverty are very high. Why? Because there's systemic influences. So we've got to get young people to begin to see, wait a second, how are those systems working in some sense against us? How do we begin to negotiate the rules and then figure out, look, there's nothing wrong with getting paid, right? Dale, you probably heard me say this all the time. I always tell young people, what we're trying to do at St. Francis College is ensure you get paid. But we're also trying to make sure that you understand that that's not the be all and end all of your life, right? You got to get paid and it's important to build wealth because it's important to build wealth for yourself and for your children and for your children's children. But you also got to understand how to build yourself a life. So I think there's some important elements there. That if we, if we look at the ground of the question, right, I'll just end on this. This is what I tell young people all the time. You got a, you got a, you got a finite journey from womb to tomb. And the fundamental question is who you're going to be in the meantime, right? And, and part of that is creating conditions for you to dream, for you to explore, for you to be curious.
about the world. Learn something about yourself, learn something about others, and learn something about the world. That's what we need to inspire in these young folks. Thank you for listening to the Great Wealth Divide podcast. We want to take a moment to acknowledge our sponsor. J.P. Morgan Chase is the proud sponsor of the Great Wealth Divide podcast series. J.P. Morgan Chase has committed an additional $30 billion to address the key drivers of the racial wealth divide and to reduce systemic racism against Black and Latinx people. Learn more about what they are doing at jpmorganchase.com slash path forward. Contact us with your questions and or comments. Our email address is tgwd at wbgo.org or you can call us at 212-994-9583. That's 212-994-9583. We look forward to hearing from you. And now we return to our conversation with Miguel Martinez-Sains and Gabriela Tejedor. Gabriela, how do you teach young people to dream beyond what they see? Yeah, I mean, I I just first want to quickly go back to what Miguel was mentioning about the young student who sort of talks about Wall Street not being for him and and that he couldn't see himself in, in that community or in that space rather. And I think I can deeply relate to that. I grew up in Miami, Florida. My family left Colombia because of the extreme guerrilla uh, violence. My father had an associate's degree. My mother went back to school when I was in elementary school. And we grew up mostly middle income. Certainly as, you know, first generation and immigrants, there was the language of college and opportunity was certainly part of my narrative. But it wasn't until I was really exposed to some of my peers that were part of the gifted and talented program that had family members who were lawyers and doctors. So this sort of the the audacity to dream starts to pick up. I also had an educator, Miss Provador, in seventh grade. She was Latina. I was actually a struggling reader in elementary school. And so I didn't love school just yet, but it wasn't until Miss Provador I saw myself in her. I saw her deep passion for reading and books, and I became in love with literature. And it sort of led me to the place in my career where I'm now, where I became a literacy specialist and fell in love with education. And so ultimately, just to name very explicitly, the way that we teach children to dream big is by creating mentors and educators who they can see in themselves, who are reflections of themselves. There needs to be a deep investment in hiring teachers of color in neighborhoods where you have students who are students of color. I think the other bit is really just getting explicit about teaching into these skills. So at our school, we talk about SMART goals, and these goals are specific, they're measurable, achievable, and they're time-bound. And we work with students one-on-one to really help them understand, well, how do you backward plan if your goal is to get into a specialized high school? How are you going to get there? What are the tiny little steps that you need to do in order to actually achieve this dream? And so we do a lot of explicit teaching to help students actually get there. But I think the other bit that that we're all sort of speaking to is the power of language. So I think we can all think back to a moment where a teacher or somebody in an education setting said something that truly just changed our lives for better or worse. A guidance counselor who met one-on-one with students for 15 minutes. And so I had my list of top schools. One of them was the University of Florida. I had NYU on the list. 
And I came over dreamy-eyed, ready for him to give his stamp of approval. And then he went down the list and told me every school that I wasn't going to get into. And that, it was devastating. And luckily, I was stubborn enough to say, I'm going to prove you wrong. And that I did. But for students who are constantly hearing that they can't or they don't see themselves represented in a world, which is another way of saying, hey, you can't do this because your skin color, because of your zip code, that matters. And so it's really about making sure that we are creating language that empowers students, that allows them to envision themselves for what they can be. We do a lot of work with our teachers at our school to focus on what we call envisioning language, where we connect the work that students do in the classroom to things that students actually care about to actually build that investment. So the other bit is when we think about, especially at the middle school level, students are are going to make poor choices. But for us, it's really about how do we separate out the poor choice from the character because kids in middle school are so fragile and they're still learning and their sense of identity is still building. We talk a lot about, you know, you made a poor choice, but you're still a great person. And, you know, I'm really harping on these really specific skills and language because a lot of this is around narrative building. And if you don't see yourself as somebody who is worthy and capable and you aren't in a setting, right, that, that Miguel keeps talking about, and we, if we don't create these conditions, then we're setting kids up to fail. You said so many things there. First of all, the power of language. I think that is the ultimate, but the mentoring, being able to see yourself knowing what's available, all those things are what drives the opportunity to gain knowledge and learn. And so I I bring it back to you, Miguel. How are you guys at St. Francis College trying to solve this problem of access and understanding the opportunities? Yeah, so uh, let me say, I want (laughs) to, we seem to keep underscoring and emphasizing one another, which I think is is probably good. Look, language is incredibly important. So I want to emphasize that. The way we talk to young people matters. Uh, The way we engage young people matters, and not young people, because the imagination is, is something that is partly driven by language and emotion. So when, in Gabriela's story, when somebody says to her, Come on, University of Florida is a stretch. It's, you know, they probably say something like, it's the premier public in Florida. You're not getting in there. And NYU, come on, you're dreaming. That not only has an impact cognitively, it has an impact emotionally, which then really constrains, you use this language earlier, self-constraint. It's, that's not self-constraint. That means that you've internalized an expectation that somebody has for you. And whether we like to think or no, the will to overcome that is actually heroic. So I always say to folks when they tell me, no, because you talk about systemic injustice, but, you know, I met a kid that grew up in the projects in South Miami. They went to Harvard and now they clerk for the Supreme Court. I say, listen, but that's a hero. And not anybody, not everybody can be heroic. In philosophy, we say those are super regulatory acts. That's beyond what we would consider ordinary for human beings. So you don't use that as an example. That's an anecdote that is not useful. It's nice that somebody was able to overcome that. But I think that's an important piece. So one of the things that, and I talk to the students a lot, and I use the language, I think I may have used it already. You have an opportunity by virtue of being in front of me to choose to live the life that you want to live. So I want to repeat that because that's important. You have the opportunity by virtue of being in front of me to choose to live the life that you want to live. Not the life that somebody else wants you to live, the life that you want to live. Now you've got to start trying to think, what are the options? 
what are your options? And I use myself as an example. I didn't, I didn't want to go to college. Why? Because I didn't know, why would I go to college? Most of the folks in our community that came, a lot of them were educated, but they didn't speak English. So what did they do? A lot of them park cars. A lot of them cut yards, cut lawns. They did whatever they did. My dad worked as a teller at a bank. They did whatever they could figure out how to do to survive. So if you're looking at that, that's what you believe is your environment. And then the language piece is critically important. So I want to emphasize that. The access piece, and I appreciate what was said earlier, which is focus on the opportunity gap as opposed to this kind of ridiculous notion of the achievement gap. So one of the things that we always like to say is we're not developing talent equally. Access is only part of the issue because the question is access to what? And what we see is that we are streamlining low-income black and brown young people into degree tracks that aren't going to create generational wealth, in part because we're patronizing and condescending in our tone. And so when we tell young people, when they come here, you want to work at Goldman? They don't know what Goldman is. And I say, well, this is what Goldman does. Oh, I don't know if I can work there. Why not? Why can't you work there? So that's number one. Number two is what we've been doing is through a variety of programs. One is called Terry Talks, one's called Career Spotlight, and one's called the Playbook Series, is we're doing something I think is really important. There might be disagreement about this. We are bringing black and brown professionals almost exclusively, but not exclusively, to these forums. But what we're not doing is saying this is a forum of black entrepreneurs. Why? Because the adjective is not used when it's a series of white entrepreneurs. So why would we use it black entrepreneurs? If you say that, let me just give you this the way I think about these things. If you say that you're signaling to a black young woman or young man, this is an anomaly. That's why they called it black entrepreneurs. If we just call it entrepreneurs and the panelists happen to be black and brown, you start saying, wait, this is just kind of standard, right? This is normal. They're entrepreneurs. I want to give you the example. I, I brought an economist. She, she actually worked at Goldman, Dambisa Moyle, to the campus. It was my first speaker I invited to the campus. She's an international economist from Zambia. I brought her here, and some of the students said something about the way they presented it, and I presented her. I didn't say she was black. It was obviously she was black. It was always she was African. But what I want the young people to see is that this is a normal part of the experience as opposed to something unique. So I just want to be clear about the adjective, the use of the adjective. So what we do is we are trying our best to get folks in front of our students that look like them. 70 plus percent of our students are black and brown students. What does that mean? That means that my speakers need to mirror that so the students can see themselves in that space. And then the last thing is we got to have some love. I tell young people all the time, listen, you got to surround yourself with people that love you. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean people are going to tell you what you want to hear all the time. It means that they're going to tell you sometimes they're going to give you a hug when you need to be hugged, but they're also going to hit you upside the head when you need to be woken up and say, listen, you said you wanted to go work at Morgan Stanley in investments. You are not doing what you need to do to get there. And to do that, you need to build trust. My sense is one of the things they're trying to do at the middle school is build a community where trust can emerge so that they can have the difficult conversations with the young people. They can embrace them, but they also need to have some difficult conversations about some of their behavioral tendencies and then support them to get them to shift those tendencies. You said a lot there, man. It it really ties in 
these episodes that we've had over these past few weeks. One was access to capital for entrepreneurs. One was an understanding of the historical components that really put people of color in a box and had them fighting for equal opportunity. And then it's where we are now, which is how do we provide equitable education to all? In researching this episode here, one of our producers, Mike Sargent, brought a quote to me from uh, Marianne Williamson, American author, political activist, and educational advocate. In the USA, we're the only country that bases its educational funding on property taxes, ensuring poor children will get poor education, thus perpetuating poverty. It goes on, but it, it, that just hit me right there. You know, it just... You know, Dale, let me say something real quick. Sorry to interrupt, but I want to tell you something. I worked in the, in the state of Ohio. I want you to understand the gravity of what I'm going to say here. The Supreme Court, four times, four times, the Supreme Court of the state ruled four times that the funding mechanism for public school education was unconstitutional. Again, I want to be clear what I just said. The Supreme Court, four times, their ruling was that the funding mechanism for public education was unconstitutional, and the legislature did nothing to change it. And this is what Marianne Williams is talking about. It was based on property taxes. So if you lived in Oakwood, you had incredible amount of resources. You had three levels of physics. You had engineering opportunities, right? If you lived in Dublin schools, you had the same. If you lived in inner city Columbus, you didn't get physics. You got the basic sciences, the basic math, and that was it. And so why would a state Supreme Court have to rule four times on something? And still it never changed. And so what was she saying is this is real. There's a systemic issue that has serious implications for achievement. That's why it's not an achievement gap. It's the fact that we don't want to develop this talent. And so I think that's important. I just wanted to emphasize that because that's not that's not only Ohio. I go into public schools and parochial schools in New York City I'm going to tell you, there is a difference depending on what school I go into in terms of the resource allocations that are put in place. And what are your thoughts on that, Gabriella? So, I mean, in New York City, though, it is a bit different because we aren't basing funding on property taxes. That said, New York City is still the most segregated school system in the country. And there's no surprise here. The system isn't broken. It actually is working in the way that it was intended to, with redlining and to ensure that white affluent students benefited. And so in order to really create a just system, we have to be incredibly intentional. And so certainly I think it's about revisiting and looking at how we allocate funding. I mean, the way it works in New York City is you have some of these family associations, what they call the the PTAs, that raise funds on their own. And you have one in public school in Park Slope that raises a million dollars a year a million dollars a year. And where does that money go to? It's the extracurriculars. It's the special programming. It's the hiring of new teachers. It's the new recess equipment. It's the new textbooks. Funding, I think, is certainly a big issue. I think, though, if we really want to talk about equitable education, I think we need to go back to Brown v. Board. Or we made this promise 67 years ago that we would reintegrate our schooling system. And we haven't fulfilled that. And if you look at what happened at the peak years of school integration during the 60s, 70s, and 80s, we actually started to see the opportunity gap start to close more steadily than it has in any of the years that followed. 
the misunderstanding here is when you put black and brown students in the same classroom as white students, they just get smarter. You know, that's that's not what happens. It has to do with resources. When you're putting students together in a classroom, you have access to great teachers. You have access to great facilities. There is an equal distribution of these resources. And so in my mind, reintegrating school is, is a really great place to start. And I think the challenge has been, and we see this happening in New York City with its current leadership, there's a constant push to just say diversity and inclusion will just happen naturally. We know that's not true. So in order to to fix this system, we have to intentionally think about the way that we are admitting students and creating cohorts of students in our neighborhoods to ensure that they are diverse. And I'll pause there. I mean, I, I can certainly go on around my thoughts on sort of busing and integration efforts. I was a product of an intentionally integrated school in Miami. So I went to a magnet school that you had to audition in order to get in. It was a phenomenal middle school. I went to school with kids from all over Miami. And I think that, you know, some folks will push back and say, you have to cultivate the neighborhood and and keep the neighborhood intact. But I think that's just honestly coded language for, for something else. And going to school with kids from all over Miami, kids who are Haitian, Jamaican, Cuban, Dominican, Indian, Chinese, truly across the spectrum, that is Miami, incredibly diverse. That changed my life, right? That changed my trajectory because I had access to the gifted and talented program and to the theater program and the language of opportunity. So I'm a big proponent of really thinking about integrated schooling as a way to fix this educational crisis in our country. What it did was it provided you with more options. Right. And so as we move to the close, what what I want to get your thoughts on is, first, let me, let me just bring this information that I, I was reading. USA Today, an op-ed by Lynette Gostafaro, November of 2020, she states that a noted recent study on American public schools showed that predominantly non-white school districts received $23 billion less than majority white school districts serving the same number of students. Does the state, local, federal government have an obligation to provide an equitable education for all students? Let me get both your thoughts. Why don't you give us, start us off with Gabriella? I'm curious actually to hear Miguel's thoughts on this because, you know, I, I guess my vantage point on this is I think the federal government certainly has an obligation, but I think part of why I was compelled with my partner to create an independent school was because our local government and New York City wasn't acting fast enough. And I can't stand behind a system that is continuously disenfranchising low-income kids of color. And so uh, I think the responsibility is certainly on our government to really transform and and, and create an equitable experience and, and purposefully allocate resources so that it's a more even playing field. I think my frustration was it's not happening fast enough. And so our solution was to create an independent model. But the reality is, yes, I would love to see what we're doing, which is truly reflecting the racial and socioeconomic diversity of Brooklyn. I would love to see that at the public education level. It's just not happening fast enough. Yeah. I mean, look, I think it's a complicated question, as you know, Dale, right? So there's so many, so many layers. I think one of the things that we haven't done, and this is obviously it's a public agenda. This is a, in my view, it's a, it's a crisis that we need to attend to. So the government has to play a significant role in, in my view. I think that there's another role here is played is, is basically how we talk about folks. So I want to go back to language. I think the media plays an incredibly important role here. 
right? Because the media has also created conditions for people's imaginations, in my view, to be stifled, but for us also to talk about them. And, and you could talk about it from any, any sector. I use the example of the young persons in Queens that don't want to go to Wall Street because they don't think it's for them. But let's just also think about the coded language that's being used. Oh, my child goes to an urban school. What does an urban school mean? It means a low-income, predominantly black and brown school. So we talk about those kinds of things. And that's code for negative. So there's a way that Obviously, our educational environment lends itself to this kinds of thing. I want to also emphasize my children go to public schools in Brooklyn, but my son, when he was at PS261, they did a fundraiser. You do a fundraiser where you have families that have means. We gave significant amount of money to that school. All of a sudden, their curricular, extracurricular activities, they got an incredible theater program. They got this, they got that. Got that. And it's because the parents, they're not paying for the public school directly, so they can put in a lot of cash. But that's unfortunate if you're in a different environment, you, you can't do that. There was actually a piece, I think it came out in one of those Forbes columns on the fact that the Baki decision, which is a higher ed decision, I know Gabriela talked about the Brown v. Board decision, but the Baki decision, which is a decision in 1974 where Justice Powell said it was a Supreme Court decision, basically that there is an educational interest to have a diverse learning environment. And what we know is the evidence, in fact, tells us that that's, in fact, true. So Gabriela uses her story as an anecdote. But one of the things we're trying to do at St. Francis College is actually enact a diverse learning environment across all categories. Because what's happened in higher ed, and this is also in the publics, they've become very homogenous. And it just depends where you are. Like when you have neighborhood schools, like Gabriela emphasized, we know that neighborhoods are homogenous. We could talk about redlining other things. So I think that there has to be a governmental interest to ensure that we create diverse learning environments. Why? Because that's the way we break down people using assumptions about other people that they have no interaction with. I want to give you a quick story that illustrates this. I had a friend of mine in Miami. In Miami is much more diverse now than when I grew up. I'm a little older than Gabriela, probably a lot older. But so when I grew up, it was predominantly Cubans. There started becoming an influx of Haitians and Nicaraguans and then more. So when I've gone back, it's much more diverse than when I grew up. But I think that's an important thing. So a friend of mine says to me, this is a confessional, talking about issues of diversity. He's talking to me about living in New York and this and that. And he says, man, I got to tell you, I went into a restaurant and this is a few years ago. He said, I went into a restaurant and there was a woman in a hijab. And I, I got nervous. And it was completely irrational for me to get nervous. And I know it was irrational, but I was nervous. He said to me, I started realizing that my nervousness was because I've never interacted with Muslims. So I don't have any sense except for what the media is communicating, which tends to be negative. And so... Here's where we want to really break down this idea. There is an interest. It's a public interest for the government to think about incentives. And there could be some public ones and some public-private partnerships. I think there should be a combination of those things to ensure that we have diverse learning environments across the board. And let me just say this about higher education. There are 1.2 million college students in the state of New York. 500,000 of those are served by the private sector. The public sector can't solve this problem for us, and the private sector can't solve this problem for us. It has to be a combined effort where we come together and think about the educational ecosystem that we've created in our city and our state 
and think about what are the best ways to attend to it. One of the conversations that's happened in the state of New York and across the country is the free community college and free college initiatives. What we know, because it's been tested already, Georgia is the best test case. When you make your public institutions free, they become more white and more affluent. As I tell people all the time, rich people like free too. And so here's what I want to emphasize, and this isn't going to be that popular. When Ken Langone gave $400 million to NYU Medical School, he said that that was a commitment to make medical school free. And that was a full-fledged commitment to access. I'm a little cynical. I'm going to tell you, NYU Medical School will, in the next five to seven years, be the most selective medical school in the country. Why? Because who wants to give away dollars to go to medical school if they can go to one of the top medical schools in the country free. So what they've done is it's not an access focus. It's right a selectivity focus. So we got to be real careful when we talk about we're giving something free, who we're giving it to, who's actually going to get access to it. And then what's going to happen is that lower income, predominantly black and brown folks, when we're talking about the city, are going to be pushed to under-resourced schools because they're not going to have the social capital to negotiate the other space. Sorry, that was a long answer to a, probably a short question, but. What you did, you dropped the mic right there. It's uh, amazing the work you both are doing. Let me thank you both. Miguel Martinez Saints, president of St. Francis College in Brooklyn. How can we find you? Yeah, sfc.edu. We're going to be moved to Livingston, 181 Livingston, September 2022. And what we're doing, I just want to emphasize on this point I believe that our students should have access to the state of the art and the latest technology. We have made a decision to move into a brand new facility so our students can have access to what they deserve so their talent can be developed equally. Love it. We also like to thank Gabriela Tejedor, co-head Brooklyn Independent Middle School. How can we find more about Brooklyn Independent Middle School? Certainly. Yep. So uh, you can find us at BK, as in brooklynindependent.org. Next year, we feel incredibly grateful that we're going to be able to be doubling in enrollment size, doubling in staff size. We're located right by the Atlantic Terminal Center, right in the heart of Brooklyn. And, you know, I think just to really emphasize this point on middle school, middle school is really where students are sponges of learning. And it's where you have two tracks, where at the elementary school, you have a pretty even playing field, but it's at the middle school level where students are understanding a sense of identity, really starting to understand grades and who they are as as young scholars. And we're really looking to create an environment where all students, regardless of zip code, regardless of race, have access to an excellent middle school to then set them up for high school and college and beyond. So thanks for having me on. Well, thank you. And, And let me say this to both of you, your efforts to find ways to make education equitable and accessible is critical. The work indeed lessens the achievement gap. So we appreciate you for doing that. But what it also does, it establishes a better understanding for all about how education can lead to wealth building. We again would like to acknowledge our sponsor, J.P. Morgan Chase is proud to sponsor the Great Wealth Divide podcast series. J.P. Morgan Chase has committed an additional $30 billion to address the key drivers of the racial wealth divide and to reduce systemic racism against Black and Latinx people. 
Learn more about what they are doing by going to jpmorganchase.com slash path forward. The Great Wealth Divide is a WBGO Studios production. Mike Sargent is our producer. Eric Wynn is the creator of The Great Wealth Divide and executive producer. I am your host, Dale Favors. Look for us wherever you listen to or download your podcast and also at wbgo.org. So long.